This is Breaking Silos, and I'm Asao Inouye. And I'm Shane Wood, and we're scholars and teachers in rhetoric and composition looking to engage in conversations outside our field. And this is a podcast that engages in deep discussions about guest scholarship and the ways that scholarship may teach or assess language and communication in college classroom. Our goal is to draw on a range of perspectives that might inform how we approach teaching and writing, what we can learn from others as a field. All right, welcome to this edition. And we have today uh, Michael Russell. Dr. Dr. Russell is professor in the Carolyn A. and Peter S. Lynch School of Education and Human Development at Boston College. His current research seeks to confront racism in educational measurement by examining the use of deficient, or excuse me, deficit language in the presentation and discussion of findings from quantitative analyses applying intersectionality theory as a lens for examining item and test bias and incorporating a social justice lens into text test validity theory. His most recent book, Systemic Racism and Educational Measurement, examines the influence the white racial frame has had on educational measurement and quantitative methods and explores potential influences, alternative frames such as critical, critical theory, quantitative critical race theory, and rectificatory justice could have on the fields of educational measurement and social sciences more broadly. Yeah, and we're we're thankful. Thank you, Mike, for for joining us. And that's the conversation that we'll have a, about your book. So, uh, your book, "Systemic Racism and Educational Measurement: Confronting Injustice in Testing, Assessment, and Beyond," was published by Taylor and Francis Group in 2023. And that is what our conversation is going to be about. So, thank you uh, for joining us. How are you doing? Great. Yeah. And thank you for having me. I, I, I love what you're doing and I'm uh, very glad to be part of it. Well, we are happy to have you and really excited. I have to tell you, Mike, as we get started, um, that when I found your book almost by accident, uh, cruising through my li- my uh, the ASU library, um, I uh, I was so excited that this was, that this is, and then when I started reading it and wh- how you bring together theories about race and ra- and understandings about racism and into educational measurement and thinking about it just I, I I was telling myself this is the book that I was been wanting to see for quite some time so I really appreciate the 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 work that you're doing in this so let's get right into the question one question we have again like usual we have four questions we can deviate from those but let me start with the first one that I think gets at the heart of some of the things that I'm really excited about in this book In chapter nine of your book, you argue that, quote, the field of educational measurement currently functions as an apparatus for systemic racism, end quote. You are speaking primarily about large-scale assessments, and you use Omi and Winnott's um, concepts of racist and anti-racist projects, Foucault's apparatus of oppression, and you continue to consider the structural and institutional ways that Fegan's white racial frame also informs assign, assessment design, assumptions, validation, and decisions. What do you think a high school English teacher or a college writing teacher should understand about this chapter's arguments? And are there ideas that writing teachers might learn from, perhaps even consider, when they teach writing in their courses? Yeah, I mean, your read of the chapter is uh, is spot on. I mean, at, at my analysis really focuses uh, primarily on large scale testing and assessment, but I I think the logic of the analysis is applicable to anyone who designs, develops, administers, or uses information from a, an educational test or assessment. Um, as I think about it, like the, the white racial frame. Um, you know, which is really an ideology. It's a racial, racial ideology that um, it just it, it's, exists in our society. It's a dominant ideology that influences um, the thinking of, you know, particularly those of us who grew up <laughs> in the U.S., but people who come and in, in, in are part of the society as well. It influences so much of, of uh, the way that we think about people uh, and and what we value in society. And, and so... You know, if we think about the white racial frame as something that's influencing everyone and everything that's done in the U.S., for a classroom teacher, it obviously is going to influence what they are doing. It's going to influence what they value in student work. 
that's going to influence the structures of arguments that they tend to favor, that they tend to uh, find persuasive. It's going to influence the 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 linguistics, the gr grammatical structures that they are going to give value to. All of these things, you know, if you use scoring rubrics, all of these influences um, or values show up in those scoring rubrics. And it's what a teacher is emphasizing to their students. And that's not to say that like those things are necessarily problematic, but they they do advantage some people and they put others at disadvantage. And, and sometimes they even turn people off um, who, who may be less familiar with those structures and in grammatical styles. So I think for a, for a classroom teacher, you know, just like I try to do in that chapter, well, actually throughout the whole book, you know, that there's an opportunity us for, for us to reflect on how are we influenced by this racialized ideology? How does it influence what we're valuing? How does it emphasize what we're encouraging students to value? Who's advantaged by that? Who's disadvantaged? Who's potentially harmed? I, mean, I think all of that comes into play, uh, you know, for a, for a classroom teacher of writing or any subject matter for that that case. Yeah, and you know what you're making reminding me of is something that I uh, that I uh, like to ask uh, teachers when I do work with them, um, uh, and we're talking about mostly writing teachers, um, and it's th to separate pedagogy from a writing assessment in the classroom. That is, we can think of these things separately philosophically, theoretically, even, uh, you know, uh, process-wise, et cetera. So I'm wondering, I mean, what you're reminding me is, is that separation. That is, that there is, there is, say, a dominant standardized English and, and disciplinary uh, outcomes around language that we could see. And as you said, may not inherently be problematic. In fact, they offer a lot of things to the, their users. At the same time, using them in an assessment system, to then will then automatically begin to privilege those who come into that classroom with those uh, with more of those habits already ingrained or already uh, being used. So I'm wondering, can you can you uh, say uh, how do you let, 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 let me just interject real quickly? Yeah, there, please, please do. Please I, do. I mean, it, it's interesting because it, it, again, it, it's I'm not arguing that it, it's not important to develop those skills, mm -hmm. but oftentimes in in a given classroom assessment activity it's not those skills that are necessarily being developed there may be other you know it could be you know my my, my wife uh, was an english teacher you know and so she she did a lot of teaching of analysis of texts right well that's the focus of the assessment is on analysis of text it's not on necessarily the use of these conventions and and so what I'm suggesting is, you know, be, for us to be thoughtful about when we are assessing those and putting emphasis on them, and when we are assessing something else and making sure that they're not getting in the way of the assessment of, of whatever skill knowledge that 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 is the focus of the of the task. How does a writing teacher who's not obviously uh, researched in the you know assessment uh, validation uh, and design? How does a teacher who's not doesn't have a lot of limited knowledge and experience with that deal or or does do do this uh in ways that are thoughtful and meaningful uh and can reduce the kind of harm that i think you're talking about like and let's think about a writing class just as, as who's going to be so they're thinking about assessing language in their class yeah yeah well i mean i, I you know w when we're designing a large-scale assessment the the first one of the very first activities is called defining the construct, defining what it is we're trying to measure. And I, I think this that same principle holds for a classroom teacher. You're giving an activity for students. You know that you're going to be looking at it, you know, critically, not negatively, but critically for for feedback and grading or whatever the purpose is. And I think you need to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I having my students? engage in this activity what what am i trying to help them learn what am i trying to learn about them and you know again sometimes the standard english conventions is part of the activity but sometimes it's not and and in fact sometimes there can be activities that are valuable to have people go outside those conventions to experiment with their voice to experiment with their writing to experiment with alternate ways of communicating so 
I think a lot of it is just clarity and why are you doing this in the first place? Yeah, that's uh, that makes me think about um, the the first uh, question that I'm usually asking myself as a teacher who's designing his assessments in his class, whatever that assessment might be, uh, which is what is the purpose of this assessment? Like, why am I why am I gathering whatever I'm gathering and making the judgments I'm making? And then what am I doing with that? Like, why is that the important thing to do with it? Um, which uh, which were surprisingly early on in my in my teaching career reduced. Um, the instances of needing to do the, the, this this kind of uh, uh, hierarchical judgment of of performances, and again, I'm thinking about the language classroom. Um, I wonder, I wonder if there isn't still a tension with that uh, that that Fegan's white racial frame and the standards we have for language right. in a classroom. That that is that you that. When you do whatever, anytime you sit down to judge somebody else's performance and, and say language, you have to draw on what you know, right? And as a teacher, we are, you know, English teachers, right? We're always trained to, to in within uh, institutions that already are oriented towards a white racial frame in all that we do. So how do we, is it just that that's the nature, there's a nature of tension that's always going to be there? Or is there a way out of that for in your in your mind? Well, I, the, I think that tension is always going to be there because until our society <laughs> changes <laughs> in a major way, right? The, the, I mean, I think one of the premises of systemic racism is that you have this racialized ideology that's used to uh, oftentimes justify the outcomes that are produced by that system, right? And as part of that that framing, that ideology, there, there's values given to certain things. Again, certain linguistic structures, vocabulary, da 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 da. da. And what that also does is devalue other structures, other linguistic features, other ways of other evidence sources, right? And I, you know, I, I think part of the role of a teacher who's trying to not necessarily fight the system, but be conscious of who's benefiting and who's harming by the system, it is to explore ways to allow some of these alternative ways of expressing alternative evidence sources to be acceptable. Right and now, it becomes a little bit problematic. I think you're referring to, for example, the the standards that exist. You know that particularly in K twelve, you know the English language arts standards, and then the uh, large scale accountability assessments are built to measure achievement of those standards. And because those standards embed standard English conventions, which we would say is a, a you know a, a part of the white racial frame production, like there's a tension there that if you're not teaching those, those students are likely to uh, perform less well on these assessments, which then is going to either harm them or harm harm you as an educational system mm -hmm. through you know, the way that you're going to be classified. So there is this, there is a lot of, uh, there's a tension there. Um, and I, you know, I don't know how you get away from that until we make changes to the larger system. Yeah. But that doesn't mean, I mean, again, it's difficult as a classroom teacher because you you have limited power, you have limited resources, mm -hmm. and you're often working with very diverse populations of, of students. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything you do in your classroom is geared towards preparing students for that test. And, as, and as, especially in the college uh, classroom. Well, particularly uh, in the college, yeah. 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 And the idea of experimenting, I mean, I, I just, I think of the same thing, like, with my own work over the last decade, like, I've had to expose myself to so much literature, so many ideas that are outside of my field, and certainly outside of what I was focused on for my, you know, the previous part of my career, right? And it, it makes you uncomfortable, it makes you question your knowledge, question yourself, Um and I think for a lot of a lot of teachers of 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 writing who have grown up with embrace and value of of, of certain standards, this it, there's this there's the same type of unlearning that has to occur, 
or or the same type of acceptance of other ways of of communicating that that may need to occur yeah i think that's the that's the really hard part for a, a lot of uh teachers i mean we we were hired because we we are supposedly know what we know right <laughs> right and we're we're going to profess and 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 uh, and, uh, and teach um, students when I think there's a there can be a different orientation where we think what are our students going to learn, not what we're going to teach them, um, yeah. and that might be a that might be a little bit of us realizing oh we have things that we need to continually be learning and unlearning like you said I yeah. I, I, I like that I I think that's really a, that's really hard because I think that the heart of that activity is being uncomfortable uh, like and I think you were talking about that Do you have a, a as we move to the next question I want to ask because um, I feel like um, there's still something else that a writing teacher might get from this. Um, uh, if, if let's say I'm a writing teacher listening and I'm, I'm thinking, um, okay, I acknowledge there's the white racial frame that's probably informed a lot of what I do in the classroom, what I know about writing and teaching writing and learning writing uh, in English. So what what's the what's the first thing or maybe the most important thing I can do to be uncomfortable in the way in, to unlearn the things that might be uh, needing uh, more careful and vigilant attention on my part as a teacher. Uh, well, I'm not sure how to answer that because I'm not a writing teacher. <laughs> right. well, and I don't necessarily think of myself as a, a great writer. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure exactly, but I'll, I'll use an example. Um, uh, 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 in my own teaching, so we, we and for my own uh, own own life. So, I have my uh, my wife has um, uh, her her mother's Bolivian, so she has a lot of living relatives. And in our program, we often have students uh, who've come, were, you know, grew up and educated in uh, South America. And one of the things that I've often noticed is that when people from a, a uh, particularly a South American education background build the arguments. It's a very different way in which they build the argument. And I often feel, I used to feel it was like they're weaving around and, but then they always, they bring everything together at the end, mm -hmm. right? Whereas I'm used to this very structured, linear, build, build, build argument. And so for me, when when my students from from those that background back 10 15 years ago were building arguments it was very difficult for me to a follow their arguments and b give the same value to them as those who are following the more linear structure that i've been um encultured uh, with and so for me it's it, you know like i've had to reprogram program myself to recognize that oh they're using a different argumentative style as they're presenting whatever it is they're they're making a case for, right? And so I've had to a recognize that it's a different style, and b develop patience to wait for that argument to develop in a way that I'm not accustomed to, and c then recognize all the strengths of that of the argument that's that's there, right? And so I think that idea of coming coming to recognize that there are different ways of communicating, different ways of structuring arguments and so forth, it, and it, coming to accept them, even though I might, I'm not, I, I don't adopt that practice, but I accept that practice now. So I, I think there, you know, that, that kind of ex learning and self-reflection and um, coming to embrace the value of these other ways of communicating is, it may be applicable to a writing teacher. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think, you know, one, one thing that, that you're sharing is based on even what what you did is this this type of critical critical awareness, right? right. Uh, this this type of listening, this very intentional listening, uh, and this this type of deep kind of self-reflective analytical work. And I think you even mentioned you you mentioned this in, in your answer to the first question. Um to a sow, but you also started seeking out and, and reading scholarship uh, elsewhere, right? Which I think is kind of like the heart of this podcast is really thinking through 
this mm-hmm. interdisciplinarity and, and how this interdisciplinarity is yeah. really important in helping us understand what what we do, even within our own disciplines and fields, how we need to look elsewhere. Because I think you said like you just started reading, like you started reading in other fields and disciplines as well. Um so that you could write a book like like this. So I think that's a, that's a, a key aspect of it is that critical, uh, you know, a, attention and awareness that that deep analytical self-reflective work that seeking out uh, other practices, other knowledges, other uh, scholarship to help inform um, uh, kind of your, your renewed understanding of, of something. And, and one thing leads me to this, my next question, which is, this is something that I, I paid attention to how you use language <laughs> because, you know, we're writing teachers. So really focused on that, that language aspect. And, and throughout this book, you use the phrase, quote, member, not white, end quote, as opposed to minority, minoritized, person of color, BIPOC. And you also use the phrases, quote, people membered white, end quote, and people membered black, end quote, to, quote, emphasize that it is human beings, people that are placed into racialized groups, end quote. I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit more about these, what seems to me as a reader, the very intentional kind of strategic decisions that you make through your own language and through your own writing, um, particularly that you make as a writer and in, in framing racialized identities and, and using this language and, and this terminology, and this might be informed by that, that, that work that you were doing seeking elsewhere, but how using this language and terminology, um, why you chose to use this, this language and terminology and maybe expand on how maybe other kind of commonly used phrases somehow miss the mark whenever we're talking about um, racialized identities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It was a very intentional decision on my part um, to, to use that that idea of membering. And I, I did that really to uh, reinforce correction of my own thinking. I mean, I, I, I was raised to th- and encultured to think about race as something that's innate to a person. It's within a person. It belongs to the person as opposed to being put on to the person, right? And so the idea of membering for me was we are placing people into groups and as a member of a group, you're either given access or denied access, right? So if I'm a member of a golf club, I have these privileges at that club. If I'm not a member of that club, I have no privilege at all there. So I I, I was using that idea of membering to to say that a person is being placed and once they're placed then they're either denied or granted access to various privileges so you know again i i i use that over and over and over again to in part retrain my own thinking and hopefully retrain others who were encultured with the similar understanding as me and similarly i i i i tried to always use you know, couple a, a racialized membering with a people or human. Again, to, to one of the reasons that we create certain racialized groups and then create narratives about those groups is to dehumanize them. And so I wanted I wanted to remind myself and readers that we're not talking about like I won't even use the terms, but you know, when people will call a group based on the racial the name for that group. We're not talking, we're talking about people who are made this, right? And, you know, one of the ideas that I've, I didn't have it fully developed when I wrote the book, but um, more recently I heard an interview with uh, Zadie Smith, actually, about her new book. Um, and she was asked um, by uh, Terry Gross, who was on uh, Fresh Air, she was asked about um, the identity of, uh, of one of her characters, and um, Terry, I think, made, made reference to her, the, the character's social class. And Zadie's response was, well, I don't think about that as identity. That's a structure. That's a structure that's put onto a person. And, you know, it, it, when she said that, it just solidified the understanding and what I was trying to get at here that, you know, like Foucault talks about this, Judith Butler talks about this, Amy Allen talks about this in, in, in some of their work on uh, identity. And uh, and power, 
is is that we create these groups. Once I'm put into that group, it defines me. It defines how other people see me. And it influences what I have access to in society and what I have less access to, or in some cases, no access. So that's the structuring that occurs in what I'm, what I, and that's what I'm trying to get at through, um, you know, thinking about being membered into something. And again, rem- reminding people that all of us are human and all of us are being membered into these different groups to give us access or deny us access to power opportunities and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I'm curious as to did, did this kind of language come from other scholarship that you were used to? So one thing I'm thinking of, uh, a lot like like a commonly used phrase of, of BIPOC misses the mark because it's yeah that's a huge category, right? Like it's not individualized, right? Like the, the, you're you're not talking about um, a specific community or a specific identity. It's just a large framework, right? So. I, I'm curious as to maybe what you were reading that that had you think differently about this this idea of membership. Yeah, I, so I, I don't I don't recall seeing that term being used any by anywhere or by anyone. But you know, part of it was the work of uh, uh, Haney Lopez, who was doing um, analysis of of uh, you know how racial identities or categories were defined and redefined in the law right so that again a lot of those supreme or those cases are all around becoming a member of a group in order to get citizenship or have different uh, property rights right so that was all around that was all membership thing so when i was reading that that idea of membership was coming into play similarly when i was reading um you know intersectionality theory and, and thinking about social positions, social locations, and the intersections um, that create different locations. Again, to me, that was the idea of society membering, structuring our location in a, in a social system, and how that structuring, that that membering us, placing us somewhere, is then impacting um, our, our power opportunity and so forth. I mean, you can also see it's kind of like those ideas kind of came together. I, I mean, I can also hear um, in that that phrasing also uh, Omi and Winnot's racial formation theory in the sense yeah. that that it's a it's a it's a set of projects that create categories called race that we know today. And so it so what so your your phrasing just identifies very explicitly that this is the process of someone becoming a member of this or being placed into that category for whatever whatever uh, social or societal processes. But that makes me think that uh, how important language like that, even if we're, whether we're going to adopt it or not, is important to discuss with students in a writing classroom where the yeah. where where language is part of the racialized project. <laughs> that is, that's part of it. I mean, all what you've been talking about is the terms and which are categories, which are membership, which give you access to privileges and other things in society, other places. And that's really the the writing classroom or the English or literacy classroom, uh, you know, writ large into society. Yeah, well, you know, in the intro, you mentioned the the work I have been doing um, on deficit narratives uh, in quantitative research, and you know, a, a, that work is exactly focused on the language that's used when people are presenting findings from such as usually statistical analyses. And what what's interesting in that is, you know, when we go through our coursework as a student, and we're doing a, a technique called regression analyses. We're t- we often talk about a variable having an effect on an outcome, right? And so when we add uh, gender or race or sexual preference or whatever to the model, we get an estimate of the effect of race on the outcome. And people then talk about the effect of race as though someone's racial membership is causing or somehow contributing 
to a difference in their test score or whatever the outcome of interest is, as opposed to, no, it's not their racial membership. It's, it's what that membership allows or disallows them access to and the way in which they're treated that is having the effect. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the deficit narrative uh, work that I've been doing is looking at how are people using language and, and, and how does that use of language either reinforce these narratives uh, about different racialized groups or how do they direct attention to the societal factors, the institutional practices and so forth that are really the fundamental cause for these differences. And, and you know, so that, that's, that's all about language and word mm -hmm. choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe let me move to the, our, our third question. I think this kind of, since you're talking about that, that kind of stuff, this is sort of in that same ballpark around uh, context neutral item content in assessments. Um, in chapter 13, you discuss Jennifer Randall's work around, quote, context neutral item content in large scale tests. Such assessment work is meant to create test questions with bias free content. As you explain, Randall's criticisms of this practice in assessment argue that they essentially reproduce racist outcomes and tests. In our last uh, in our last episode, or, uh, uh, we had Randall on and discussed with her the ways language is never neutral. These two ideas that our prompts and questions aren't neutral or context free, and that language itself cannot be neutral, suggest that there is no way to teach or assess language without also teaching biases or using those biases to assess student language or work. If you accept this paradox, how would you think about it with a writing teacher who must assign writing and assess it in some way? Do you do any of the questions say in chapter 14 around item of bias, that's around in, in my book, three page 376, help a writing teacher design or interrogate their own assessments that they enact in their courses. So I'm really thinking about that, those lists of questions. You have several lists of questions in that chapter. Um, and I'm just thinking about this one here. Um, do you do you think that that those uh those questions or some versions like them might help a, a writing teacher? And we can I can we can mention a few or or, or read a few if you want. Uh, yeah, I mean I think that you could we we could probably rewrite those questions so they're more mm -hmm. pertinent to a writing teacher. Um, and by the way, that episode with Jennifer was wonderful. So not, mm -hmm. not to promote someone else's uh, episode, but it was a great one if uh, listeners didn't hear it. Um, I, I think the, the larger question you're getting at here, though, is, is can we ever get away from uh, embedding bias? in in our assignments, in our grading, and so forth. And I, I think it I think it depends on how we think about this, right? So if we're always enforcing the same values, we're gonna be enforcing bias. We're gonna, right? But we could think about ex asking students to experiment with different techniques, with different voices, with with uh, different evidence sources. It comes back a little bit to what I was saying in response to the first question, right? And, and so by asking them to experiment, to play with their voice, to play with their style, encouraging them to experiment with some other valued systems in terms of expression and evidence and so forth, we're, you know, I think that's one way of trying to uh, I, I won't say distribute the bias, but de-emphasize the value that we give to any one um, uh, any one of those structures. So, and I think as a right, you know, as in writing, I, I would imagine experimentation is extremely important. And then the law, even if you gravitate back to what you're used to, you're probably going to be a better writer for having experimented with other other styles, other voices, and so forth. How does that work with the assessment part, though? Like when you, when the, when ultimately the 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 the, the teacher has to provide some kind of hierarchical or ranking grade onto a performance that, uh, like the kind you're we're talking about. And again, I'm thinking about that bias in the yeah. judgment as well as the standards that are expressed as here's the rubric or here's the assignment. 
I feel like there's two areas of bias there or, or, uh, well, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Well, I mean, if you're asking someone to experiment with a different voice, your criteria can shift to, to what extent is that voice different from, from your standard voice or how well does it reflect this other, this, this other style or other practice or other, other form of communication. Right. So you're in that, in the scoring rubric for that, you would be emphasizing, you know, whatever the qualities, characteristics of that other style are, right? And right. and someone who actually is accustomed to that style should be elevated. They they should be among the top performers on that assignment. Whereas someone who's never encountered it in the beginning is going to probably really struggle. But if they're a good writer, I would imagine. Again, I'm not a writing instructor, so. I'm a little bit out of my lane here, but I would imagine a good writer would more quickly be able to adopt some of that style and language and so forth. Whereas a struggling writer is is going to continue to struggle with that. So it seems to me that you know it, it it comes back to what are you emphasizing in your your rubric and your scoring criteria, and, and, maybe, and, even, and maybe even that purpose question, like why? What's the purpose or the point or the goal of the, of the judgment or the assessments on this, whatever? And that will that will shape. If a teacher is asking that first, that's going to shape whatever rubric or whatever criteria they have, right? Right, right. And again, if you think about you know the, this idea of and, and, and this might be your next question, but uh, you know anti racism, mm -hmm. you know th again that that's a technique, and this you know Jennifer talks about this a lot with the uh, item content. You know, using a technique where you're asking people to experiment with with very different styles is introducing them to the style. And even again, even if they don't come to embrace it, they're they're more familiar with it. And and when they encounter literature that's written in that style, they're more likely to be able to take it up. Yeah. yeah I, 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 go ahead. Go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead, Asal. I was just going to say this this discussion, what you're describing, uh, reminds me of a a practice that I, I regularly ask my students to do in feedback practices when they're giving feedback to each other. Um, and it's so in order to get a, a taste of a very deep taste of the habits of language and judgment practices of their peers, it's not just that I want them to have um, to be to be to get feedback on their writing from their colleagues, but the feedback is is pretty different uh, in this in what I'm in my uh, classes. It really is about what did the reader experience and where did I get as a reader those ideas and values? So, and we leave off like, I don't, so I might have my own notion about what clarity is right in this, or what my own idea of what a sub substantive evidence is for this kind of claim. And my peer or my colleague will have something else, maybe slightly different, maybe dramatically different. Um, and so that the point of the feedback isn't to say, to make the judgment is to explain whatever judgment I have and where that get those ideas. And then we do some investigating about um, the sources of those things in society, in our backgrounds, in our training, in our, the models that we have in our heads uh, that we use. And I find that um, it sounds to me like that might be a, another way beyond saying, testing out a, a different way, a different you know set of a language dispositions or, or voice, but also testing out by hearing from other people who are very different from me, you know, in the classroom about, it happens to be about my languaging, but it, but it's really about theirs, right? Like right. that's the point of the feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you mentioned anti-racist projects and uh, that kind of is the next question. So you define anti-racist project as a quote racial project that challenges, resists, or otherwise works to undo structures that produce advantage through oppression based on racially stratified stratified categorization. End quote. So I'm hoping uh, again, maybe you could expand a little bit more, talk more about how you would encourage educators to, to go about locating and confronting anti-black racism and white supremacy in classroom practices and structures. And what it might look like to to build anti-racist projects within those spaces. So, what strategies or advice do you have to give? And then there's kind of like a second part to this question. So maybe that's the first part. But the second part is I know that you also have expertise and, and interest in computer-based technologies and, and applications. And now, kind of given the state of higher education and, and conversations about AI and writing, I'm really curious as to 
how educators might think about building anti-racist projects in digital spaces, you know, critically thinking, analyzing uh, digital technologies and maybe the the biases that they reproduce. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll have to write another book. Yeah, that's a small <laughs> question. Those are really small questions. Just, <laughs> yeah. just an, a tiny. Yeah, yeah it's very, yeah, small, I, very small. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I, I, again, I, I'm not a, a, a writing, I, I don't work in the field of uh, uh, teaching people how to write. So I'm not, I, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that in that context but i but i can reflect on like the, my own work as a, a professor of educational measurement and yeah i think that'd be I great do. like what what does that look like what does an anti-racist project look like in educational measurement and, you know like what are the practices strategies because i think i think that's the heart of that question is like getting an understanding of what it looks yeah. like in a different context yeah i mean for, for for me again if you go back to that definition it's around challenging uh, and, and undoing structures and ideas and, and ways of thinking. So in educational measurement, you know, one of the things I, I do as a, as a professor with my students is, you know, I make every effort and I take every opportunity to challenge um, students' thinking and their acceptance of current practices, right? And again, it's not to say that current practices are problematic, but I, I as, uh, as I was saying, I, I, I try to force them to ask questions like, why did this practice come to be? What was it trying to accomplish at the time? What was motivating it? Who was benefiting from it? Who was being harmed? And is it still useful? Or is it something that is a practice because it's a practice and we it's a habit that we have never stopped uh, practicing, right? So asking those questions all the time um, and, at, and forcing students to, to, to confront those questions, I think, is part of the uh, the challenging and undoing uh, that that is necessary for anti-racist projects, and which I think all all educators can do in any discipline. Um, you know, I also think again, trying to get people, and I, you know, I'm trying to do this through my work on deficit narratives, to get people to be reflective about the language that they're using, why they're using that language, and what that language is doing. Now what is it what is it what is what narratives are you producing? And is that the narrative you want to produce? or is or is there a different different way you can structure your language so you are redirecting attention again in, in our work to institutional structures in in the system that's creating, these differences in educational outcomes, as opposed to directing it to the individuals, to their families, and so forth. So, it, it, again, it, it, I can't speak to writing instruction per se, but I think just constantly reinforcing the importance for reflecting on the why, 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 and and who's benefiting, who's being harmed. What do you? What stories are you producing? What effects are you producing? And is that the effects you want to be producing? That That's what I try to do with my students. Yeah. And is there a, a, a specific system or structure that, that might be like a go-to for you in the classroom in educational measurement that, you know, students are really problematizing or, or these ideas are kind of coming to fruition through these questions that you're asking students to think about, I'm thinking about it, maybe like a specific model of assessment or so, some, something that you are focused on and say, Hey, let's, let's problematize this together. Let's ask these questions. Let's think about its history. Let's think about its implications. Um, so is there like a, an example maybe? Well, I, I mean, I, I teach a course called critical, critical perspectives and um, um, research. I can't remember even what the course is called, but critical perspectives on the foundations of research methodology or something like that. And in that, we we take some of the core ideas that are kind of foundational in our field. So the idea of objectivity, right? Well, it's really interesting to look at the history of, of the concept of objectivity and, and how it has changed over time and how it actually has flipped. Uh, what used to be subjective is now objective and vice versa. Right. And how at different points in time, um, uh, what objectivity valued 
You know, so there was a period of time where objectivity was about finding truth. And then later on, it became about the actual, the methods, the method, if you use certain methods, that's going to allow you to be objective. And it was no longer about the truth. It was about the methods and adherence to accepted methods, right? And so then that 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 begs the question, okay, well, what does that do for us as practitioners who are trying to be objective? Are we trying to be objective in removing us, the researcher, from the the, the question, from, not from the question, but from the, the, the research itself? That's one concept of objectivity. Is it about us adhering to accepted practice? Is it about us trying to find the truth? Can there actually be a truth or is the truth? So, so it's like I use that as a way to really push people in our students who are all, ta- you know, they all were taught that objectivity is great. That's the goal. <laughs> we want to be objective. But what the hell is, what does it actually mean? And how are we putting it into practice? And do we actually want to be objective in that way? And, and in fact, and there's as many- a student, oh, I, if I was in your class, and now I'm kind of thinking through, okay, there's no n- neutrality in our self, right? So you're saying we we take that out because of our subjectivity. And then the value of that objectivity gets placed on the methods. And here I am, I'm thinking I'm a, I'm a student in your class now. So So now are you kind of saying, well, maybe we should actually question the methods and say there's no objectivity in the methods either. That that really right. there's no neutrality in the methods. So why are we maybe valuing that as objective? And now my student, I'm thinking, okay, then what's next? What 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 do I value? Like if I if I can't maybe trust myself and I can't trust the methods, where do I go from here? <laughs> right. Well, well but, and, and, yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because in that in that session that we are exploring uh, the history of uh, objectivity, the next session we actually look at. There's a a, a wonderful study that was done where, um, uh, uh, basically, a couple of researchers got I can't remember the number, but it was like let's say 30 teams of researchers. They gave them the same data set. And the same exact question. And they asked them to explore that question. And the number of answers that came out of it, <laughs> it's the same data, same question. And the number of answers that came out of it and the variety and the conflict in the answers was amazing. And so that opens the student's eyes to the fact that, wait, the choice of method and the choice we make about what data we include, what data we exclude, has profound impacts on quote unquote the truth that we discover, right? So it 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 goes to exactly what your question getting at. Like it's, it forces them to to think about how important it is to be transparent. But it also, and, and but I, I think too that that movement to the you know there's no neutral technology. Like we could take that right. a step further. There's no neutral technology as well. And I think what you're what you're saying makes me think as a writing teacher, maybe particularly in the first year writing classroom, maybe the, the second sequence of that, that's more research driven, how important it is to develop information literacies, right? And, yeah. and how information literacies gives us maybe a more critical framework to thinking about our methods, our practices, and, and kind of going through that series of questions. But then if we're exploring maybe AI literacies and, and tech technology, we take that same kind of critical information literacy framework to that, where we're questioning, what is this doing, right? Like if you can give yeah. the same question and the same data set to 30 different people, and it's all written differently, that's something we we have to question. Like we have to analyze and think, about what is that quote unquote objectivity in in, in that yeah. that research? Yeah. Well, in in regarding AI, I, I was at a meeting last week um, where AI was a, a big topic for in an assessment context, and you know what one of the topics that kept coming up was the importance of prompt formation or prompt writing, and how if you change the prompt, you get a, you know, let's say you're asking for some information on whatever, on objectivity. If you change the prompt, you get a different answer, right? And so the idea of being able to 
continually modify your prompts so you can get more and more refined uh, information coming back from the AI and how how you form that prompt then effectively biases the information that comes back as well. And so the importance of experimenting with your prompts, so if you're concerned about bias, for example, so that you're getting many, many different responses and across those responses, you as a reader are making sense or hopefully can make sense. I mean, that's a, that's a similar uh uh example or paradigm as the the study with from 30 different you know perspectives yeah. right i mean yeah, the, exactly each prompt is just a, another sort of mini set of methods that the ai technology is using to develop the answers from the same database essentially right. so so right. yeah i mean and it and it i oh, i think it's interesting one thing that i found interesting in uh your uh, both of your conversation in the last few minutes is that if we set up the problem in the classroom with, say, with students about, say, objectivity or about the methods and truth or whatever, if we set it up as, as a choice, then I feel like we've set up a false choice, right? Like it's sort of, we've, we're already working within a certain binary that says, oh, there's got to be an answer here. Either right. it's objective or it's not. Either it's the methods or it's truth that we're the right answer we're seeking. And I think that's one lesson I learned in my work in anti-racist work. That is what I'm hearing is, this is part of the anti-racist project to, uh, to sort of get outside of these kinds of binaries while still accepting, okay, the world functions with this binary and, so, and we can learn something from, from this. And that it's not about finding the right answer. It's about in this moment, how do we get the most just answer that we can come up with, with the people involved and have the most uh, you know, input or the most um, uh, participation uh, by, by folks uh, around us? Um, I guess I'm, you know, it makes me, it reminds me of, um, also of, I don't know why, I'm thinking maybe it's because of the arbitrariness, but I'm reminded of uh, Sassur's like a definition of the sign, the linguistic sign. And he says the linguistic sign is always arbitrary or something like that. But, meaning like that it, the signified and the signifier are, there's never like some logic, like universal logic that matches them together, right? It's somehow culturally situated always for all right. kinds of political reasons. So the same, I would say this, I, I feel like there's a similar similarity in the methods that we have chosen or that are dominant in a field. And it could be about the people there and the politics they have and the things they're wanting to accomplish at that moment. And they get carried over into the today. And then we just have accepted some we've accepted, some we push back for other reasons. But that's yeah. what you're reminding me of. And that we could remind our students about those things as well. Like we don't have to accept the uh, the ideas and methods from, from the last generation, it, whole cloth, if we don't want to. Um, right, exactly. Yeah, and again, it's not to say that you know everything that's coming to us is problematic. Right, right, right. Right, but we need to we need to th think critically about when it can be problematic and when it is productive. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, when when it's being used, who's benefiting? Who's harm? Who's being harmed by that? Yeah, yeah. I I I love the the. Um, I think one of the uh, since uh, Shane was at, has been asking about the AI. Uh, and uh, and technologies that that I guess they're not really emerging anymore, are they? We've been we've had AI around us all <laughs> the time. They've emerged. They, they, yeah, they're already there, and they've been there. But but they make you know in my own work it, with students and with AI, uh, having us use it in class and experiment around with it in the ways that you were describing, Mike. I um, it makes me realize like oh, it's almost like we've we've uncovered some soil that has always been there or in a, at least for the last maybe 10 or 15 years, 20 years maybe, um, that we now have access to um, in a more public way that while it could be a very dangerous and uh, unethical thing for especially in schools and such, um, but it could also be this incredible opportunity to um, make breakthroughs in the kinds of work that we're talking about. Like, I mean, I yeah. think there's some ties to our own Western traditions of objectivity and racist projects. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, that is most racist projects have have been at least at the time of their of their work, right, have been uh, justified by a, by um, uh, uh, you know appeals to objectivity, 
Like they're, right. um, so right. it's the right thing to do, or whether it was about truth, or whether it's some transcendental truth, or whether it's about some methods. It's this is just the answer. Or I'm thinking about the, uh, um, the what was that book? Uh, maybe 20 years ago, uh, Hernstein and uh, the Bell Curve. Hernstein and Murray. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was weren't they just saying? Well, this is just the results of the. That we're not. We're not yeah. really racist. We're just. <laughs> this is what the numbers. Say. This is what the numbers say. So, yeah. <laughs> but you're suggesting no. Wait a minute. The methods right. also matter here, and they may and they may point us uh, inadvertently in a particular direction. Right. Well, I mean, it, 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 there's a really interesting article uh, by uh, David Gilburn, an uh, English uh, uh, measurement person, um, where he talks about how you know we we again using regression uh, methods. Right, and and you see this in some of the states that use uh, growth at student growth estimates. Hmm. They'll include they don't most of them don't include race, but they'll include factors like um, SES in the prediction of what the students' test score should be this year. Right, and so growth is measured by looking at how did how did you perform last year. How did that performance plus SES plus a couple other things predict you were going to perform this year? And did you outperform your prediction or underperform your prediction? Right. Mm -hmm. And what's effectively happening in that model? People will say, well, that's an objective model. It's just a statistical model. But what it ends up doing is establishing different expectations for members of different wow. social groups. And if you if and if you would put race, racialized identity into their gender and there's differences among those, you're effectively establishing different expectations, which is not, there's no objectivity to that at all, to say that one racialized group, because there's a negative coefficient associated with them, are expected to have lower scores this year. And if they outperform those by a little bit, oh, great, we did a great job, but we didn't expect them to do as much to begin with. Ah. Right? And so it's a great example, I think, of how, yeah, what seems to be an objective statistical model ends up contributing to racial inequities, at least at, at racial inequities in terms of expectations. Because it can hide hide that uh, what's actually happening. Right? Yeah, yeah, actually, and, yeah. And, and it, you know, in effect, if you had it, it, again in some models they do, but if you have racialized groups and you are seeing these negative coefficients for certain racialized groups, those kids could be meeting their target. But year after year, you're actually getting more and more separation. So by the time they graduate or whatever, then they're they're yeah. in a very different place than yeah. their peers. Yeah. yeah. Even though they've met their growth expectation every single year. What you remind me is that most writing teachers are going to be like, this is the black box of assessment that I have no access to. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know how I would be able to interpret those results other than what people tell, you know, what what at their face they tell, they tell us. Yeah. Uh, what do you, how do you... Uh, is there a resource? Is there something that a teacher, a writing teacher that could, because I think that's, this is like really important to be able to discern for ourselves, this kind of data that comes across our eyes all the time, whether it's in public forums or whether it's, you know, in reports and it could look like, oh, we're making progress. But like you said, maybe we're not, or de depending on what we're actually looking at, but how do we get in that black box without having to be experts in assessment? Like as a writing teacher, is there is there an easy way, or is there a, something to look for? Maybe, <laughs> you know, in the in the dis, dis, dissemination of results. Yeah, I, I mean, the problem is that the, there's so much technical work that goes in yeah. under the, under the covers that it's hard to uncover what's going on unless you have that technical expertise. But I, you know, I, I think in most cases there are people who would look at these, you know, the, this type of work critically. Okay. And it's it's trying to find those voices, um, but I, I, otherwise, it's 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 a it's it's a very arcane technology. Yeah, it. Yeah, I I know for years it was very for me. Um, much of it was, it was like a black box that I couldn't open up. You know, it was yeah. that, that was difficult, or it was very difficult. It took a lot of yeah. work, and I didn't feel very trained in it. At yeah, least, and least, you know, every every program, at least every state program, has these technical reports that come out. But mm -hmm. it, you know, it, <laughs> unless you know what, yeah. what these words mean, that it's I, hard to 
what the I, report's telling you. I, I think it took me about five or six years just to know what the right questions to ask experts were. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, this is these are the questions I really need to ask about this, this information that I'm getting. That then I can start to interpret, uh, interpret it. But uh, yeah, but I guess what you're, uh, what I hear you saying also is that maybe. Uh, we should be also looking for uh, uh, those voices that um, offer maybe counter analyses or counter interpretations or alternative interpretations to to whatever interpretation we get, at, you know, at its base. Yeah, uh, yeah, that is, that's exactly right. Yeah. I just don't know how to find them in every state. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, I, 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 I was hoping there would be some secret decoder ring thing you could give us all. And be, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, my, uh, my mentor, George Medeus, um, he, uh, he had long advocated for like a consumer protection agency type of thing for testing. Um, you know, to have some kind of organization that was, that all these different tests were feeding information and that could serve as kind of a clearinghouse for this type of information you're talking about. But um, he passed away before his uh, idea uh, took ground. So oh, I, he, wonderful uh, voice in, ass in assessment. I, uh, he was one of the first uh, uh, folks I gravitated to in the literature, um, especially around his discussions of technology assessment as technology technology yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i was really intrigued by that it really helped me think through some of these things at a crucial period of my yeah. uh we're those are our four questions i have a bonus short question i want to ask you that has nothing to do with this this book or maybe it does you tell me i'd love to ask it if you're willing uh, and you can be more than happy to say, I don't want to answer this question. So most uh, most teachers know, you know, we have course evaluations at the end of a semester and we always get, or we, uh, I'm thinking two, course evaluations and I'm thinking grade distributions, uh, like uh, bell curves and things. And we're often, you know, evaluated or uh, by our teaching on these things. Um, that is either as an adherence to the bell curve in, in our grade distributions or uh, or how well or how we don't, or some other way of reading the in, at ASU, I think it's like it's like question seventeen on the course. That's like the key one. Like is it the overall? Does this teacher did this teacher perform really well? Um, and I'm just curious, how would you do? You have advice about? We, I mean, we all know the the concerns and criticisms of these of this kinds of, of these kinds of evaluations and numbers, but. Is there a good argument that someone in, say, our, their annual evaluations that they could, in their narratives, they could write that would help them or that they could uh, present to their chair or others that, who read these in a very perhaps narrow way? Is there any advice or any way that you, you have of thinking about these these two things, either one? Well, I, I, well I'll comment on the, 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 the bell curve. So it, I, I always find it interesting that some educators value a bell curve distribution of grades. To me, it's curious, right? Because if I'm an effective educator, I've gotten all kids to right. a highly proficient <laughs> place. Right, right, right. So why am I, why would I then spread them out, out you know, <laughs> in, in, to, to match this, this distribution that, you know, Galton and others created 120 years ago? So I, I, I'm always curious about, I, and there's there are times if you're doing selection of people, it's important to create separation among them. But if you're thinking about education as moving people to levels of proficiency or whatever term you want to put to it, it doesn't make sense to me. So, I mean, I guess I would, people who value that, I would ask them why they value that and why they're clinging to that, that idea of separating and in bell curves and and you know even ask does it even does it even make sense for achievement to think that it would be distributed in the in a bell in, a, in the shape of a bell um in terms of the evaluation i actually a, a another colleague of mine larry ludlow uh, who just recently retired he did a lot of uh, analysis of course evaluations and i don't remember everything that he found but there was all kinds of really interesting factors that seem to influence course evaluations that really had nothing to do with teaching <laughs> um you know you know things like the composition of the class and what you know, it was just all these totally irrelevant things um so i don't know i mean i think evaluations of courses is good you get sometimes some good feedback but you know 
but grain, maybe grain of salt, I guess, right? <laughs> a big grain of salt, yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think, like, well, like you were talking about earlier, it's like everything. You have to put it in a context and understand the context that's producing those, uh, those that that's uh, contributing to those evaluations. Yeah, the hard thing is, I think, that with a lot of contingent faculty and others who are have who work, say, uh, and year-to-year, contract-to-contract, it can be, um, yeah. th- these can be really important things. Uh, even, like, recently in a in a department meeting, while they were not, they were not uh, saying, this is an, a, a, a measure we are going to use to evaluate your teaching, but yeah. you should use it to help you teach. And it was ratemyprofessor.com. Oh, really? Um, they oh, said- wow. They said, and the re- the rationale was our students are going to this to choose professors and yeah, courses, yeah. so we should use it to um, uh, to be knowing that uh, and how we use it. They didn't get that specific, and they weren't, you know, they weren't. I don't think so. So I thought that was really interesting. It was the first time that that came up as like without being a, a point of criticism. You know, they weren't saying, huh. you know, there's just a bunch of junk. What they were saying was. Our students are using this. We need to acknowledge that and and work with that system. And I feel conflicted about that because yeah. it seems like it accepts all the biases in that system already. Like in who is going to go on to uh, rate my professor right. and and so forth. And, and what's motivating them to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Although I have to tell you, like do, doing that type of work we've been talking today benefits by having smaller classes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So, so may, maybe it's good to get low risk. <laughs> then you don't get as many people, and you can do better work with those who choose to come. <laughs> right. Well, this has been a really engaging and wonderful conversation, Mike. We really appreciate your time and your thoughtful uh, responses. And uh, and and I we we know that like hardly anybody if I, if we do our job right, no one that we have on is a uh, is an expert in writing studies because um that we don't that's not the that's not who we try to invite yeah. <laughs> so so we really but appreciate you, you certainly you succeeded today <laughs> no. well we we feel that your book and and your work has a lot to offer uh writing teachers like us and writing researchers so we really appreciate um the work you've done and your gen- your generosity and your willingness to to think with us about these questions and these problems so thank you so much for your time and your and your work yeah thank you yeah, so much thank- Thank you again for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.